Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. I have religiously followed the analysis and surveys and forecasts put out by the Mortgage Bankers Association for years. And today's guest is one of the leaders that leads that effort of analysis, surveying, and forecasting for the NBA. Marina Walsh, Vice President of Industry Analysis at the Mortgage Bankers Association. Marina has been at the NBA for 22 years, which is really significant because it means that she's seen multiple cycles and has been in charge of research and analysis since before the GFC and seen some of the trends change, not only in the data, but also what the membership is looking for in terms of knowledge and intelligence. In today's conversation, we talk about profitability. We talk about home builders. We talk about the depository and independent mortgage bank mix of industry market share, servicing, and we even go into forecasts for the remainder of 2023. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Marina Walsh, Vice President of Industry Analysis at the Mortgage Bankers Association, as much as I did. Hey folks, this is Clayton again, and I invited Brenda Nath back on the Housing News Podcast to give you a little more detail on Housing Wire Annual. And if you listen to this show regularly, you've heard our longer overview of what Housing Wire Annual is and what you can expect from that event. But I wanted to give you a quick reminder. So we are building Housing Wire Annual for executives and leaders in the housing industry. This is Housing Wire's mortgage-focused event that covers everything in mortgage finance from origination, servicing, secondary markets, and partnerships with real estate, title, and valuation professionals. All the things that have to happen to have an efficient housing ecosystem and an efficient transaction process for borrowers and home buyers. Yeah. From just even starting out with the speakers, you have people like Frank Martell, the CEO of Loan Depot, Lo- our own Logan Motoshami, lead analyst over at Housing Wire, Sandra Thompson, FHFA director, and even Celine Kalam, who's the CEO of Thrive Mortgage. And it's what are they talking about that actually applies to you? So they're addressing how are they staying profitable in this business? How are they creating communication flows from the top down and making sure that everyone through the company is driving that business forward? How are they making the tough decisions this year? As Clayton has talked before, it's a tougher market, but even though it's a tougher market, there's still people who are growing. So how are they winning that market share and what does their mindset have to do with that? So if you want to learn more about Housing Wire Annual, visit housingwireannual.com. Or if you're on Housing Wire, you can click the events tab and see all of our events, Housing Wire Annual included. This event is October 10th through 12th in Austin, Texas. And for our housing news audience, we're bringing you a special promo. I'm not even gonna tell you what it is on air right now. You have to DM me. So you can hit me up on LinkedIn, Clayton Collins, CEO of HW Media, or on Instagram at Housing Clayton. So check us out. Join us at Housing Wire Annual. Thank you. See you in Austin. Marina, thank you for joining us for an episode of the the Housing News Podcast. Thrilled to have you today. Great to be here, Clayton. Our our listeners have gotten pretty pretty used to the topics that we cover on Housing News, where we're usually speaking to C-suite leaders in the mortgage banking or real estate brokerage space, or digging deep into data with some of the economists and analysts and experts that understand this industry at the fullest. So I'm thrilled to be able to dive into some of the the housing market and mortgage data that the Mortgage Bankers Association and your team has brought to the forefront consistently for years and that many of us rely on for a pulse of what is happening 
in the housing economy. I, I'd love before we jump into the data, I'd I'd love to hear kind of a, a quick overview of like how your career led to this point where you are one of the most foremost experts on mortgage data that we all rely on every week. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll get started. Um, I, I'll say that I've been with Mortgage Bankers Association quite a long time. I've been with them 22 years, uh, which it, it's just flown by through the good and the bad through many mortgage cycles. But, uh, where I first started out um, in mortgage was working at Ernst & Young um, in their Federal Credit Advisory Services Group. And of course, I get put on a mortgage banking product, a project uh, working on um, Ginny May uh, credit programs and uh, different federal credit programs. And so that was sort of my introduction to mortgage banking. It's really interesting because, you know, in this in this field of mortgage banking, people have very different uh, backgrounds. But I fell into it and uh, then I... Uh, one of the people that used to work at Ernst & Young eventually uh, moved to Mortgage Bankers Association, and then I, I followed her. So I've been here a very long time through thick and thin, raising my kids and um, always in research and economics, Clayton. So I've uh, been working on benchmarking and you know expanding my scope um, as the years go on. <laughs> Marina, today we're going to talk about some of the reports and data that um, you're in the MBA are really, really known for, like the um, the industry profitability study and some of the application indexes. And we're going to go in and talk about servicing. But I'm really curious in this 22 years in economics and forecasting at the MBA, how some of like the focus areas have have changed, and like if I if I do the math on twenty two years, we're going back to the years that that led up to the led up to the GFC, kind of the boom years of mortgage in the in the early and mid two thousands. And I'm I'm curious of how like your economics team focus has changed at, through through cycles, and like kind of what type of research and survey work and reporting has been valued by the membership that relies on you for intelligence? Now, that's another loaded question. I, I would say there's much more of a focus now on the cost of compliance. Um, from 2010 onward, when you think about Dodd-Frank and the changes that made um, to the industry as a whole, um, you know, there's a need over the years for much more granularity, you know, understanding profitability of different segments, um, whether that be uh, banks versus independents, small versus large, um, different product types, heavier government versus um, conventional conforming. So again, the need for more granularity to really figure out um you know, what are the pockets? What are the market opportunities out there? Um, I think is, is a pretty big change while staying compliant, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Last night, I, I was at a small gathering and dinner um, hosted by our, our friends at AIS here in Dallas. And they, they do outsourcing and um, uh, work particularly around like the servicing space. And um, the group that was together was, was pretty bank heavy, like mortgage leaders inside of the depositories. 
And I honestly felt like I walked into like a whole different dimension in terms of like the focus areas. And um, I, I bring this up because you mentioned compliance. So like one of the, the comments that that came up again and again is that like when they're listening to vendors and vendors are keep kind of hitting on that like cost control mechanism, like some of the the bank mortgage leaders are inside are like all of my priorities are set up around um compliance, security, risk management, not necessarily around cost control. And I'm like hearing this kind of like mind blown because here in like the the IMB world with the independent mortgage bankers that we spend so much time with, the the, the cost control and like business growth and margin management like have been topics that are so front and center. Do, do you see a like inside of the membership, like a focus on like different data points that like mortgage banks versus depositories consume or care about or ask you about? Absolutely. Uh, the big change, I think, or, or one of the differences rather is um, on the bank side, um, oftentimes they hold their loans in portfolio. So going back, they kind of look at profitability differently. Um, so they have that net interest margin associated with portfolio loans. Now, for the purposes of our benchmarking and comparing banks versus independents, we don't include that net interest margin in there. Uh, so we ask them to sort of impute or estimate a value for their their servicing right and their um, secondary marketing gain, even though that's not in accordance to GAAP. So big focus among banks is what can they hold in portfolio? So when you think about the change in the market in January, I would have said, wow, advantage banks, because they're going to have this portfolio product, whether it's arms or jumbos and so forth um, on their balance sheet. Um, you know, able to expand into other products. And March really threw that up in the air, right? Um, and so there's much more scrutiny at the board level um, within banks over uh, what is held um, in portfolio now. Um, so yeah, very, very interesting times uh, in terms of uh, independence versus banks and, and, and who's going to come out um, on the other end, I would say, um, you know, we we talk about banks and cost controls. There have been some notable uh, layoffs um, as of late on the bank side. Um, those happened on the independent mortgage bank side, you know, for over the past year. Um, but that's starting to come out too. So it's it's not as if they just have uh, free reign for sure. There is definitely um, an important focus on regulation, on security, as you mentioned. And so in general, banks' corporate costs on a per loan basis are higher uh, than independents. But Independents are certainly focused on regulation too and compliance. Um, so those costs are going up for them as well. It seems like the banks, if March hadn't happened, if we hadn't had this SVB debacle that like kind of shook the the uh, the whole banking system, I was going to say like regional and specialty, but it extended far past that. I, I think the depositories could have written as much jumbo business as they, as they ever wanted and probably still could write as much jumbo as they ever wanted, but start to start to bump up against regulatory thresholds of what can be held on in that portfolio. 
Absolutely. And and I would say whether you're a bank or an independent in our credit availability index, we see a movement towards simplification. You know, just the opposite of what we saw in the 2000s after the refinancing runoff of 2003, you know, mortgage lenders were trying to retain volume originating exotic products. Uh, now, with this this turn of events in terms of volume, we actually see um, mortgage companies just trying to simplify their products to reduce costs. Um, so it's interesting to see that dynamic. When you say simplify products, do you mean tighten the 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 breadth of the product suite or like what what does simplify products mean? Yeah, absolutely. Focus on what they do well. So they may not be offering 30 different mortgage products out there. Um, you know, we see it in our credit availability index. Um, and so, you know, just uh, um, sticking with what they do well, the, the vanilla conventional conforming or government product. And then, it seems, tell me if I'm wrong here, but the one product it seems like everybody, banks and independent mortgage banks is trying to, or has recently launched is, is home equity though, right? Like, isn't the home equity product like kind of the outlier on, Hey, we, we want to add this to the portfolio. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, we are going to release very soon our home equity lending study publication. Uh, we took a sabbatical from our home equity lending study for a year when a lot of lenders got out of the space. There was cash out refinancing. There wasn't a need for home equity. But given this uh, accumulation in home equity and the fact that many existing homeowners are sitting on very low interest rate um, uh, first mortgages, I think there's definitely a huge opportunity in the home equity space. Um, If existing homeowners don't want to move because they don't want to lose that that first mortgage rate, um, they could potentially renovate. So the move up buyer may think, uh, have second thoughts about uh, uh, moving into a new home and will consider renovation. So that seems to be where the focus is based on our study. I'll just give you a sneak peek into the results, but um, renovation being uh, a key reason, and that still has the tax benefits associated with it. I'll wave my hands in the air to like get Sarah Wheeler's attention and to put it on your radar, Marina. Like we would love to like partner with you on on publishing that study and bringing more home equity content to the housing wire audience. So like, please like make sure we follow up on that. Cause I, I'd, I'd love to, to make sure that we're a partner with you on bringing, bringing that awareness of the study to, to our audience. Cause it is something that, that we're thinking a lot about. Absolutely. Okay. So, all right. So we've talked about profitability. I would love to like step back a level, the industry or the independent mortgage bank profitability study that the MBA has, um, completed and published for years has been a front and center topic on the pages of, of Housing Wire, as well as in conversations with executives across the industry. Can you give us a glimpse into the, like, I know this is probably a, a 45 minute question itself, but like the the methodology and significance of the study. So like, why does the MBA do this study? Um, and what should industry professionals take away from it? Sure. I'll start out by saying 
we do multiple profitability studies. So our most frequent and and the one that's publicly available is our quarterly performance report. Um, It has over 300 mortgage lenders included. It's based on a data feed that we receive from Fannie and Freddie and Ginny as part of um, a consortium agreement whereby we are given the mortgage bankers financial reporting form data to use in industry statistics, as long as the companies agree to release the MBFRF data to us. So again, companies, if they do business with Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny, if you're an independent mortgage company, you're required to submit the mortgage banker's financial reporting form, and we take it and convert it into something that'll help the industry. So it's important to keep in mind that that particular study does not include many banks. There might be a few bank subsidiaries sprinkled in, but really it's an independent mortgage study. Um, and so it's it's great. Um and current because we have quarterly data on it, but we also have more boutique um, detailed benchmarking studies such as our MBA and Stratmore peer group roundtable program and our servicing operations study and forum that really do deep dives into both production and servicing. So that's sort of the suite um, of what MBA offers in terms of overall profitability. And then of course we have other studies related to, you know, volume, delinquencies, um, compensation, and so forth. So in, in the Humda reporting, um, and this number will likely get smaller this year, uh, there's over 4,000 mortgage lenders in the country in the 2022 study. Um, I'm sure that'll have a three handle on it in, in 2023. But um, you're so you're hitting about 10% of the active mortgage lenders in, in this survey. The, the lenders that are not included in the survey, have they opted out or maybe fall below a thre- size threshold? Like what's the methodology on getting to those 300 that are selected in the feed? Yeah. In, in the feed, it's it's really based on the data that we get. So they have to be in, um, independent mortgage companies that do business with Fannie, Freddie, or Ginny. And you're right. So the Humda list is inclusive of depositories and credit unions and like other models Correct. That includes it. And and in addition, again, it doesn't include the small independent mortgage companies that sell their loans on a whole loan basis to correspondents solely and are, don't have their Fannie, Freddie, Jenny tickets. Um, so that's part of it. Yeah. It, 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 it's a smaller sample, but it, it really ties nicely into um, some of our other benchmarking studies. We see very similar results for independent mortgage companies between our various studies. That's interesting. So does do you think is 300 like kind of a proxy for the number? Is that the number of independent mortgage banks that have their Fannie, Freddie, Jenny ticket? Absolutely not. Okay. We go through a process. First of all, some of them don't release the data to us, but we also go through a process whereby if we feel the information is not complete, and again, it's a matter of focus. I think the agencies are very focused on the balance sheet, whereas we're a little bit more focused on on income statement items. And so if there's not the breakouts, for example, of expenses or um, if there, there are certain fields that are incomplete, we take them out. Um, so the the overall number of Fannie, Freddie, and 
uh, Fannie, Freddie, seller servicers, and Ginny issuers is certainly higher than that. Okay. You mentioned the balance sheet, which kind of reminded we and we were before we went on air, we talked briefly about an article that Housing Wire published this week. Um, Bill Conroy wrote an article titled Many Mortgage Lenders Are Like Frogs in a Slow Boil, which is a powerful, powerful headline. But the one of the main points in that article was um balance sheet. So like one of the concerns of why there may be less independent mortgage banks at the end of 2023 and there was 2022 is how many lenders kind of fall out of their um, their covenant agreements with their warehouse lenders off of, of net worth, aka balance sheet is not strong enough to support continuing to access capital and and, and sell loans. Um, and and we actually, we had a lot of information and data in there from Stratmore, who's a partner in, in your study. So um, like, how, how do you like... I don't know. Do you have any like insights or topics you want to talk about, like related to, to balance sheet? Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, balance sheet, of course, is related to income statements. So on the income statement, I mean, for the first time ever since we started this report in its current format in 2008, we've had four quarters of net production losses. So how can that happen? Usually we don't have, see that. We might see one or two quarters, but to have four quarters of net production losses is very unusual. And how is that possible? Um, well, if you think about where we were two years ago, where we had triple digit net production income, uh, mortgage companies were cash rich. They had a lot of cash, which gets to the balance sheet. And so if they were prudent, they were probably saving that for a rainy day. So they had the cash on hand. Um, and now we're seeing it in the balance sheet where just if you look at just cash and cash equivalents, that's slowly dropping down. That might be an interesting chart of the week for MBA. But if you look at the cash and cash equivalents over on a quarter by quarter basis, that keeps on a repeater company basis going down. And so they're they're slowly eating into that that uh, nest egg, so to speak. Um, and it's just a matter of how long can they continue um, before that gets depleted, which is probably, uh, you know, the basis of, of your article that you mentioned, Clayton. Um, so, you know, I, I, I spoke to a lender the other day and I said, wow, four quarters. And one lender said to me, oh, we could go another four quarters. We have the cash to do it. And, and that's amazing. But that is a really unique place to be in. And like like a big theme we've been trying to hit on is the lenders who position themselves. And, and you referenced earlier, the independent mortgage banks who got their P&Ls in shape last summer. It was ugly at the time, right? Like there were headlines about layoffs and cost reductions. And I think some of the players who were super early in sensing where the market was going, they looked weak when they did major like headcount reductions. But in the end or where we are today, they position themselves to play offense and actually have the cash reserves to stay in the game longer than their competition. Yeah, but it, it's hard. I go to these conferences and and folks, I feel like they're going to start throwing rotten tomatoes at me because I show these charts that show this, you know, study high $13,000 uh, per loan in, in costs. And it's really hard because many of them say, Marina, we're down to the bone. 
we need our loan officers in place in order to get production in the door. So there's only so much cutting that we can do. And we did have another chart of the week that I think, Clayton, is really interesting that looks at those per loan figures, uh, 13000 per loan in losses versus same store gross expense reduction. And if you look from peak to trough, there's been expense reduction of 58% um, based on our quarterly performance report. 13,000 is the cost to originate, but the loss is, has been in like the, the, the 2,800 range in Q4 and 2,000 range in Q1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's been in that range. I, I like thinking about net production income in terms of basis points, but negative 68 basis points. Um, but, but again, in terms of gross costs, 58% drop. Um, from peak to trough in terms of where we are. So it's not as if uh, these companies have just been sitting around twiddling their thumbs. It's just the sheer change over such a short period of time. You know, 10 Fed funds rate uh, cuts, you know, or or increases rather. Oh, goodness, we wish. Um, Increases plus potentially another um, if if you just think about this the sheer change in volume and it's even more pronounced when you look at units instead of dollar volume if you look at the unit count which by the way MBA is tracking now it's even more of a decline so just in 2023 we're talking about a 26 percent uh, decline in units so the unit volume in 2023 will be the lowest in over two decades. Um, you know, we went back and started to look at that. So, you know, it's just, um, you know, I hate to use the word unprecedented because it's used over and over again. But again, I, I have never seen anything like this. You know, it's just, um, it, 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 it's definitely a, a different environment. I thought in 2008, 9, 10, you know, when we had the the Great Recession, you know, we did have a period in which um, rates were dropping. We had harp volume, we had hemp volume. You know, there was volume coming in, but this is just again um, a different situation. You know, with low housing inventory, just no housing inventory out there. Um, there's plenty of demand. Um, I think even with rates where they are now, I remember when I got my rate back in year 2000 and it was, you know, maybe 6.75 and I said, woohoo, 6.75, that's great, you know, Um, but, um, you know, we have this situation, the structural undersupply of housing which is is adding another twist to things. All right, I, I promise the audience will tell the story how it is. So like they're here, they're hearing the negative, like the inventory sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cost to originate has come down, but it's still high. On a positive note, the survey for Q1 did show that um, the net loss for IMBs had come down from 2800 in Q4 to 1972 so just under $2000 per loan in Q1 so like hey still losing money on every loan but not quite as much as before um there was a few things that jumped out to me though that were also silver lining so like 32% of companies were profitable in Q1 compared to 25% from the prior quarter 
Can you go a little bit deeper on other like silver linings or maybe surprises that you've seen in, in this survey or other surveys that have come out in Q1 or, or Q2? We're having this conversation in the beginning of August. So like we probably have a glimpse a little bit into how Q2 played out. Sure. Well, on that 32%, keep in mind that that includes both production and servicing. So on the servicing side of the, the operation, if you have servicing, you know, things are holding up pretty well. There's cash flows. Defaults are quite benign right now. I think based on our latest national delinquency survey, we were at the second lowest level of delinquency since 1979. Uh, so things things are holding up in terms of the cash flows on, on the servicing side. Um, and, uh, you know, last year we heard a lot about the write-ups of mortgage servicing rights because of the lower prepayment activity. That certainly helped, too. So I will bring that to the attention that that 32% includes both production and servicing. But in terms of silver linings on the production side, the uh, I would say it's a great time to be affiliated or have very strong partnerships with builders, um, when we're looking at the data now in terms of the for sale housing inventory, about 30% are new homes. Um, and so really, that's that's sort of where things are right now, because existing homeowners, again, unless they have to, and there's some sort of personal event, they aren't going to want to move and, and lose their 3% or thereabouts um, first mortgage. 3.54% mortgage. Um, and so really where we're seeing um, the silver lining are are those that have those relationships uh, with builders or are able to capture new home sale financing. Working with builders always seems to be a little like point of contention for some mortgage lenders and, and real estate brokerages that, that often feel like they... Um, You'll get cut out of the process. And what, one of the things that we've, we've seen in our feed is that um, builders have been able to be more aggressive with, with rates and there have been buy downs. And so like captive or associated lenders with builders, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you know, box out other originators in that in that market. Now, now they're doing this in the compliant way, but like it's still like it makes it hard to compete against. Um, how, how are you seeing mortgage lenders effectively work with builders or is this opportunity you're referencing more so like, Hey, go get a JV with a builder or else you're not playing the game. The data that I see would be those that are builder affiliates or have those JVs, um, in place, you know, other than having, um, you know, individual at the regional level, having those personal relationships, it's hard. I, I mean, I talk to originators who like, who, you know, have their, their realtor partners have a hundred percent aligned on with local builders. And, um, and that sucks up the refer the mortgage referral. So like people, like realtors that originators have worked with for years are now sending everything to like kind of the, the JV or affiliated, um, builder partner. And, um, it, it, it surpasses the relationship because if a builder can offer a, a five or five and a half percent interest rate and um, the market rate is six and a half or seven, they're doing what's kind of best for the consumer by making sure they they land in that funnel. Yeah, I would say, you know, that is one segment that's doing well. But 
there, there are still life events. As, as I like to say, mortgage product is not simply going away. Certainly the pie is getting smaller, but the 30-year fixed rate is here to stay. It's here to stay. And so, um, you know, there, there are life events. There is a floor. You know, it, it, it's not just going to disappear in smoke like uh, the Betamax or the Palm Pilot. And if you don't know what those are, I'm way too old. <laughs> I didn't have a Betamax, but I still rock the um, HP 10B2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Marina, when we were um, prepping for this conversation, we, we also talked about servicing. You've mentioned servicing a few times how it impacts profitability. Um, the MBA also does a phenomenal job tracking the servicing market with the National Delinquency Survey and the Loan Monitoring Survey. Give us a glimpse into how servicing portfolios are performing. And, and I'd love to also hear a little bit about how your members are thinking about servicing today in terms of their strategies of retaining or selling and, and how that plays into the overall business model. Sure. I mean, right now, uh, the delinquency rate is tracking almost right on top of the unemployment rate, sitting at about 3.6%. And so if you want to think about what may happen to delinquencies going forward, look at the unemployment rate, because we've seen that trending now for almost 10 years where they're really, really in sync. Um, so, so we're still at a good place. We're, we're expecting in our MBA forecast, we're expecting a, a slowdown, soft landing, mild recession, however you want to term it, it's baked into the forecast. And so the unemployment rate is, is going to, to go up a bit. Um, and so that's important to keep in mind. We're sort of at the, at the lowest point. Um, but servicing um, to your second point is, you know, it, it, it is valuable. It was especially valuable last year because um, those independents that needed cash um, fast were able to sell mortgage servicing rights at, at a pretty nice clip um, and, and generate some additional um profit slash cash um, for their organizations. Um, and then there are those that are able to retain the servicing, hold on to it, and they have those ongoing cash flows. Um, you know, costs have flattened out over the past three years. Um, overall, based on our servicing operations study, we're looking at about fully loaded $240 per loan per year is what we're looking at. But, you know, the expectation is, particularly with these post-forbearance workouts, if there's any type of deterioration in the performance of those, that's going to be additional costs. And so, you know, the cost of those non-performing loans, especially as the waterfalls, um, the loss mitigation waterfalls might be changing. Um, the agencies, Fannie and Freddie, have already announced changes um, to the waterfall um, in the spring, and then FHA is still working through that. Um, so any of those changes need to be operationalized, which costs money, obviously. Um, and so, and then the future forbearance, where is that going to sit? Is it going to be the same as it was during COVID where there's a no documentation 
kind of option for forbearance. Because again, before COVID, we really only used forbearance for natural disasters more than anything else. But if there's a normalizing in forbearance, that's another you know, uh, that that's another pretty big change for mortgage servicers um, as we enter a, a potentially higher delinquency environment. I, I had the pleasure of, in, in July, hosting a secondary market masterclass. So we dropped four podcast episodes on the secondary market in this housing news podcast feed. And the last episode was with Caroline Payne as a co-head of capital markets at Movement and uh, Greg Richardson, who's EVP of capital markets at, at Premise. And he used, he used to be at, at Movement and worked with Caroline. It's a fun conversation. But one of the things that stuck out to me has at Movement, they had, and I don't know how long this has been in place, but they've kind of operationalized servicing and quality control inside of the, the capital markets group, which um, like when you look through that vantage point, Make, makes a lot of sense if capital markets is in charge of liquidity and kind of pulling it back to your like earlier comments on the the lenders who have the ability to um, keep spending and like holding on longer than their competition. It seems like some of those lenders are the ones who had large servicing portfolios that they can find liquidity with and use that to like gain market share over time. Does that seem to be a strategy that, that you kind of, you see some IMBs taking like selling servicing to like stay in the game or how do you see people using those portfolios? Um, well, you have the big public companies and banks who can retain servicing. I do think there is an advantage right now to volume in that space because during COVID, you had a lot of independent mortgage companies that were simply retaining servicing for best execution purposes, right? And so it just made sense because it was basically servicing they got for free at that point in time and, and margins were so good and they had the extra cash and so forth. Um, so those, it, you know, as these loans start to age, it kind of makes sense. And, and especially since a lot of those independent mortgage companies were using a subservicer anyway, and they may not have had a sophisticated um, servicing portfolio retention arm for the purposes of originations. Although I'll say as an industry, the numbers are abysmal. I think uh, the customer retention based on our latest data was at about 15%. So borrowers pay off and only 15% go back to that, that lender servicer. That's, you know, somewhere that we need to work on as a, as an industry. Like, it's like, it doesn't matter how much lenders invest in like the, the CRM and like customer relationship strategy. Like it just feels like if you don't have originators bought into building customer for life culture like that 15% number is just going to linger. And it's almost like it's not 15% because those 15% came back. It's just like happenstance. It's like, oh, I shopped around seven different lenders and I happened to land at the same one again. It almost feels like, I don't know, not a lot of, not a lot of loyalty amongst homeowners. Not yet. Um, the last time we had loyalty was really in 2012 with the HARP refinancings. There we got up to about 35% in terms of customer retention. Okay. So Marina, you mentioned the NBA uh, housing finance forecast. This is a report that I've followed pretty religiously for years. Um, the The most recent report that I saw actually dropped in in June as we're, as we're having this conversation in, in early August and dropping this episode in early August. Um, get, give us a glimpse into what the NBA is, is forecasting 
for the year in terms of um, total origination volume, anything of note in kind of purchase or refi mix or rate forecast. Um, I'd love to kind of hear your view on some of those fields that the industry, um, most executives in the industry do uh, read and then keep in their head. It's an important talking point for developing strategy. As I mentioned before, it's really important to look at both dollars and count because there's a there's a huge difference. I wish I could show it on the screen right now, the difference. But if we're looking specifically at dollars, which folks are used to us, us providing, if you think about where we are right now, we're going to end the year at about $1.8 trillion altogether. Uh, refinances really low at about $391 billion for the year. And so that's the remainder for the year. So 2023 is really at its lowest point. From there, we're expecting uh, rates to, to drop down a bit from where we are. You know, there's plenty of room in there. If you look at the 10-year treasury versus the 30-year fixed rate, there's this uh, wide differential um, in, you know, that spread is, is what, 300 basis points or so. So there is room. Once we get a little bit more transparency in terms of what the Fed is doing, in terms of just economic indicators that aren't so mixed like they are now, there's plenty of room for those mortgage rates to, to, to to drop down a bit. So again, this is sort of the worst at a little shy of 1.8 trillion going up to about 2.2 trillion in 2024 and then about 2.5 trillion in 2025. Now that's the good that's the dollar volume, okay? And then now I have to 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 give you the count. So in terms of counts, as I said, we're at the lowest point ever. So in counts, we're talking about a about 4.4 million uh, loans originated, um, a little bit shy of that. And for anyone not connecting the dots here, like volume is up compared to counts because of home price appreciation, like houses are more expensive. Exactly. Exactly. If you look at the conventional conforming, the, you know, the new limits, they're very high and high priced areas, it's higher than a million. Um, so yeah, that that's making a big difference. Home price appreciation, it's, you know, it, it th- things are holding on. It's flattening out a bit, but we certainly, except in certain pockets of the country, nationally, we're, we're not anticipating much in terms of home price depreciation. It's just a slowing in terms of the appreciation. And that's, that's a change, actually, in our forecast um, as of late. Um, I will say that. So... We have this 1.8 million trillion projection in volume in 2023 with 300 billion of refi volume. How does that mix change in your 24 and 2025 forecast? I've heard a few mortgage banking executives kind of go out in a limb and and, for, and forecast some some big refi opportunities in the years ahead. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear the MBA's take on if that that um, mini refi boom is something people should anticipate or kind of brush off the shoulder. Yeah, well, it's all a matter of how you define big refi boom, okay? <laughs> how that's defined. If it's relative to the previous year, then maybe we're getting somewhere. But the refi share is only about 22% 
um, in dollar volume. It's about 22% and then 24% in units in 2023. So that's going to go up to 27% next year and then 28% the following year in 2025. But I see the point. The point is, is that, you know, it's that old adage, you marry the house and you date the rate. I've seen that that little adage has been has been updated. Uh, the last one I saw on Instagram was divorce the rate. <laughs> yeah, maybe it should be. Divorce the rate sounds better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, today's home buyer, again, could potentially be in the money two, three years down the road. Um, potentially. But are we going, unless there's some huge, scary, catastrophic event that we really don't want, some world event happens like a war. (laughs) I mean, I I, I don't imagine it's not baked into the forecast going down to a 2.5%, 3% mortgage rate. I will pound the tables and say, we do not want to see what has to happen to our world to get to back to two and a half percent again. Like let's remember where we were when when at the lows. I mean, we had like unrest, civil unrest in our country. We had threat of world war three and a pandemic going on simultaneously. Like we don't want to be there. No, we do not want to be there. You, you got that right. (laughs) Okay. So Marina, um, wrapping up this conversation, which has been amazing. I love, love your insights and I love, love the data. Um, what data points or economic, um, announcements should we be watching as we look forward into the month of August and the remainder of Q3? Like where, where should our eyes be? Um, as we look to watch the metrics that matter for this industry? Yeah. Well, well, always inflation, unemployment. If you think about the purpose of the um, FOMC, the Federal Reserve, it's it's pricing stability and, quote, full employment. So always important to look at inflation, what's happening in terms of employment. Um, I would throw in overall GDP. Um, and I would also pay close attention to what happens in the second quarter for mortgage industry reporting um, on a profitability standpoint. And we'll have the second quarter data available the third week in August. Um, That will really give us a good sense, along with all the public company information, it'll give a good sense of just how far we have to go. And, and, um, you know, are, are we kind of reaching the end of this valley or are we still in the valley? Um, And so uh, more to come on that. Again, please uh, be on the lookout for our second quarter data coming out the third week in August. We'll definitely be on the lookout for that. And I'd love to, when you talk about some of the public announcements that we're going to see, I'd love to do some analysis and reporting. Maybe we can partner on this of like comparing the um like the 10 Qs of some of the public releases to what we're what we're seeing in the survey and kind of seeing how like uh, most of the public players are in like top 15 humble lenders so like seeing kind of how like that top largest tier compares to the the median would, would be really interesting analysis absolutely yep we we track that we don't publish it but we do track it and i i will give a shout out to one of our partners um boston consulting group they do a fabulous job and they have a quarterly report that now is available on our mba website to members um has a lot of that analysis of public company data 
Awesome. Um, I, I'm blanking on his name, but I met a gentleman from BCG uh, NBA Tech this year. KBW did a dinner and... Um, Micah? Yes, Micah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Jindal, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Oh, Micah, if you're listening to this, I hope I did that right because we just did a webinar together. But um, yeah, he heads up uh, he heads up the mortgage banking practice there. I got to get Micah on the podcast. Yes. Yes. I'll make sure we get the name pronunciation right when we do that. <laughs> All right, Marina, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and time. I I learned a lot from you. Hope our audience did as well. Thank you, Clayton. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for HousingWire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas.